California Frontier Podcast, Episode 8. The California Frontier Podcast is dedicated to helping you explore the Golden State's unique history, culture, and environment. I'm Damian Bassett, and I'm your host. On this episode of the podcast, we have a very interesting interview, a conversation between myself and a man named Ezekiel Steer. Uh, Ezekiel is an expert on native writings from 16th century Mexico City. And in particular, we're going to talk about a man named Bernardino de Sahagún. And Bernardino is connected to California because he was a Franciscan and one of the early missionaries who set out to evangelize the native peoples about 200 years before Julipro Serra. So uh, Serra's techniques, methods, uh, and his formation had a direct line back to this man, uh, Bernardino de Sahagún. Uh, Sagun was also what you might call an early anthropologist and cultural historian of indigenous peoples in Mexico. And his story is going to give us a lot of insight into the conflicts about how the Spanish dealt with native peoples and their cultures, because not everyone was on the same page at that time, and there were many, many debates about how much of Native culture should be maintained, preserved, or whether it was uh, mostly idolatry and therefore should be uh, suppressed, erased. And Bernardino is one of those uh, who set out to record as much as he could. So, we're going to talk more to Ezekiel about this subject. Now, Ezekiel is a professor of Hispanic languages and literatures at uh, Auburn University, and I learned about him through a, a really great blog he was writing called Forgotten Lives of Latin America, and you can find it at ForgottenLivesLA.com. So, ForgottenLivesLA, all one word, dot com. And there he talks about trips he's taken all over uh, Mexico, talks he's given, books about colonial Latin America. But most importantly, um, it's called Forgotten Lives because he offers insights into figures from the history of Latin America, and of course, Latin America up until 1850 included California and the American Southwest. Uh, people whom we may not know about or whose stories are very important, but uh, who somehow have become obscured. So um, I really urge you to go and, and look at his website. So um, the other thing I want you to know is that I really received a lot of great input um, about the interview with Marie-Christine Dugan, and uh, especially from people who were eager to learn more about um, native vaqueros and how Native Americans, California Indians, were some of the earliest cowboys uh, here. And 
how they performed those important tasks on the missions, right? And on local ranchos as well. The other thing that many people weren't aware of was this idea of Indian militias, of native militias uh, on the missions. And that's something that was a, a real fact of life uh, during the mission period and that uh, Marie shed a good deal of light on when we spoke. Finally, before we listen to the interview, I just want to um, remind you to subscribe. People ask me about how they can get alerts on the uh, new podcast episodes, and you can do that by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And the other thing, of course, is to let other people know. Share, spread the word, share what you heard if you liked um, what you heard on this podcast, let other people know. The more people that listen, write reviews, subscribe, uh, the more that um, the word will get out and we'll be able to keep doing this. So once again, thank you for your input. Keep it coming. And um, let's hear what Ezekiel Steer has to say. Ezekiel, thanks a lot for, uh, for agreeing to be on this podcast. I've been reading your your blog posts and and reading the things that you talk about and they're just fascinating and I think a lot of they have a lot of affinity for what I've been doing um, regarding the the Spanish uh, colonial Spanish and Mexican periods in in California and uh, so I'd be really interested uh, to know a little bit about your background and what you're an expert on the colonial uh, period the colonial vice regal period in uh, Mexico, Latin America writ large. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how you got into this um, subject, and um, and and what what drew you to it? Well, I would say it all started. I got interested in Mexico by by going there and actually seeing it. And uh, I studied at the UNAM when I was an undergrad through the University of California. And I remember that uh, almost as soon as I got there, every day my head was spinning because uh, I, I hadn't imagined it would be as complex and as rich as what I saw. Uh, I was staying in a little pension, a little boarding house in uh, Coyoacan. So I could just walk down the street and see uh, the cathedral there and uh, see that very close by there was an archeological site called Copilco. I started asking around, asking questions. I went to Teotihuacan and climbed on the pyramids. I, I got to go to Xochimilco and, and ride in the, in the trajineras there and, and see the place. And, and I learned this, this is the last existing canal from back when the whole city was on a lake. And so I, I, I really started to, to learn and ask questions. And uh, the university took us on a tour. They, they paid uh, a docent, they, they got a professor there. And he started talking about this school called, uh, oh gosh, <clears throat> El Colegio de la Santa Cruz de Tatagolco. Which uh, is a second. You were studying at the University of of Mexico UNAM, which is the big central public university in Mexico City, right? That's right. And uh, yeah, they they sent us on this on this tour, and uh, this history professor was telling us about El Colegio de la Santa Cruz de Tatelolco. 
And uh, the thing that intrigued me about what he was saying uh, was that Franciscans came and they founded this school and they treated it like it would be any European university, like it was in Salamanca or, or in uh, Bologna or, uh, or, or, in, or in Rome. And uh, they, they taught native nobles Latin and the classics and all these things. They gave them the best education that they knew how to give. Well, the thing that intrigued me about this, what this uh, professor was saying, this tour guide from the university, was that the indigenous students got so good at Latin that some of the Spanish colonial authorities started to get nervous that there might be some kind of a rebellion because they could organize and they could write in the language of knowledge and they, they could gain a following. And, and, and they said, well, this could be disastrous for us. So they started uh, these, some these Spanish uh, colonial authorities started working to figure out a way to shut the school down. Well, it was later on in my doctoral studies that I learned that, that the Spanish colonial authorities actually weren't able to, to shut it down, but what they were able to do was gradually defund it so that it eventually uh, lost its uh, ability to give uh, a university level education. But even 200 years afterwards, it was still uh, like a grammar school. They were still teaching, reading and writing to the, the local children there in Tlatelolco. So uh, that was fascinating to me because uh, as far as I knew, uh, the Spanish conquest was like a steamroller and just came in and destroyed everything. Uh, and they wouldn't bother. Why would they bother teaching indigenous nobles? Why would they even care? I had this idea that the idea was to eliminate. Uh, and so that really intrigued me. At, the, at that point, I was an undergrad. So I, I, I knew first, well, first I have to become a Spanish major. So I did that. Then uh, I was a bilingual elementary school teacher for a while. But the whole fascination with the history and the literature, they always stayed with me. And uh, shortly after I got married, my, my wife said, you know, I, I've known you long enough to know that, that these are the things that really fascinate you. So you need to go back to grad school. And so uh, she encouraged me and I did. And I went to the University of Kansas and I did my MA and PhD there in Spanish. And I ended up studying Nahuatl with um, John Sullivan who uh, at the time was the head of the Instituto uh, de Docencia y Estudios Etnográficas de Zacatecas, or IDEAS. And what John Sullivan did was to empower Nahuatl tutors from the Huasteca to get their master's degrees and start giving classes, advanced classes in Nahuatl. And remind so this, us, Nahuatl is the language yeah, of the, the... The language of the Aztecs, exactly. And so uh, I, I took a summer uh, course with him in, in 2011 and worked with Nahuatl tutors. And uh, I, 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 it's, it's a lifelong journey for sure, but um, I, it's something I have to continue to work on. But, but by getting that depth... I was able to learn more about colonial codices. Uh, and one that comes to mind that's probably a huge highlight is the Florentine Codex. And a codex is what? Yeah, a codex uh, is 
it's just another word for a, a bound book. Because uh, before the Spaniards came, uh, people in Mesoamerica were actually very skilled with paper and they had a lot of their own texts, but they worked sort of like a Japanese folding screen where they folded back and forth on each other. So they were shaped differently. And of course they used pictographic representation. Uh, so they would draw pictures of things uh, or sometimes the pictures would be associated with a sound. Uh, but uh, in any case, so the nobles already had a lot of experience with what we might call textuality. Uh, and so through these educational endeavors of the Franciscans, they learned the Latin alphabet and the friars and the nobles worked together to figure out a way to write Nawak. And once they did that, uh, then a lot of things were possible. And here's where it really started to get interesting for me because the, the more I dug, the less I found elimination. I found a lot more adaptation. At the same time, though, we should recognize that the coming of the Spaniards was, uh, was a disaster in so many ways. Not, not least of, all, of which are the, uh, the, the, de the, demogra the demographic crisis and all the deaths due to diseases, smallpox. There are new findings that say that salmonella was involved with that because uh, people weren't used to poultry that the Spaniards brought. That was a huge disaster. Uh, and then, of course, the soldiers who were often looking for selfish gain and were willing to do lots of violent things to get what they wanted. But in the midst of that, after reading scholars like John Schwaller or uh, even Luis Burkhardt, uh, David Tavares, I'm, I'm mentioning these names in case listeners want to follow up because all these things are very, uh, very good and this is the top scholarship. Um, I started to realize that, that we might make a, a bigger distinction between what the Spanish soldiers wanted, which was generally some sort of selfish gain, land, gold. Uh, they tended to be womanizing versus the projects of the friars. Uh, I learned, for example, that, that the friars were from all over Europe. They weren't necessarily Spanish. Uh, one famous one was Pedro de Gante, who came from the Netherlands. And uh, he often spoke in Latin with the other priests. He wouldn't even speak Spanish with them. So, and it was very common for the friars from different parts of Europe to write, to write in Latin to one another. So uh, I, I had this idea of, of the Spanish being one thing and, and that that one thing was vicious and unrelenting until it destroyed everything. When in fact, there was a, a different approach among the friars. And uh, one in particular, the one who, who was instrumental in founding uh, the, Cole the Colegio de la Santa Cruz de Tatelolco, his name was Bernardino de Sahagún. And uh, he came to Mexico in uh, 1534. And uh, he came with 
a different sort of approach. He said, we have a very complex culture here that is disappearing because of the diseases and because of mistreatment from Spanish soldiers. He says, we've got to do something before all of their knowledge is gone so that we can have a meaningful intellectual exchange with them. So we can really understand what we're talking about. Uh, so he uh, got his best students. Uh, he had four or five of them and he called them Los Gramaticos. And uh, among their number are a few names. Probably the three most famous are Mateo Severino, uh, Alonso Bejerano, and then the one who I've been researching lately, Antonio Valeriano. Well, Sagun said to Antonio Valeriano, who is like, he became soon his, his right-hand man. So these are, sorry to interrupt, so these are uh, Aztec nobles who are working with Sagun, or who are they? They're from central Mexico, but, but those three who I mentioned were not Aztecs. Uh, that's, that's another layer of complexity. Uh, we, we normally use the word Aztec, but we're t what we're talking about on the ground would have been a triple alliance with three people, the Mexica uh, and the people of um, Tlacuba, which is to the west across the lake, and then Texcoco, which was in the northern part of the lake. And all three of them joined forces because they had a common enemy earlier, which was the Tepanac Empire, uh, whose capital was in Azcapotzalco, which is to the northwest of Mexico City. So these three joined and they defeated their common enemy in Azcapotzalco. Then the Triple Alliance, who we call commonly the Aztecs, started to charge everyone tribute and they went out and made war and expanded their territory. And without digressing too much, because it's a very, you know, popular topic, but part of that warfare was the, the complex, which involved human sacrifice in order to drive their war machine and their imperial machine. That said, after the conquest, when the, when the friars come along and they start educating indigenous nobles, not all the nobles that they educated were from the Triple Alliance. And the three that I just mentioned, uh, Mateo Severino, he was from Xochimilco, and Alonso Bejerano was from Cualtitlan, and Antonio Valeriano was from Azcapotzalco. So uh, all three of those nobles had different perspectives on the past of the region. And Bernardino de Sahagún had a different perspective than the secular Spanish administrators. Of course, his goal is to proselytize. His ultimate goal is, to, is, is that everyone should convert to Christianity. Uh, however, he took a very unique route in order to promote that. And I, I'm not aware of too many others who have done exactly what he did. So that's, I guess that's the story that fascinates me. <laughs> so he said to Antonio Valeriano and his, and his other assistants, we need to travel to a place where people have not died yet and where we can find elders who can tell us their stories. And we need to write these down because 
the, the situation is urgent because so many people are dying. We know from the investigation of, uh, of Cook and Bora from the 50s and 60s that there was an approximate loss of 90% of the population during the 16th century. It's a huge so, loss of population. So when um, Sagun is doing this, about what year are we talking about, more or less? We're in the, uh, the 1530s, uh, 1534. Yeah, they went to a town called Tepeapulco, which was, uh, it's in the modern state of Hidalgo. And it was a three days walk there. And so he set out with his grammaticos. And this is the part where I wish there were some sort of recording or something or, or some sort of <laughs> someone taking notes along the way, because we know that these men walked together for three days. What were they talking about? We can infer that they were talking about, well, what are some points uh, in common that that uh, the Franciscans have with the wisdom tradition of the indigenous people of the, of the Nawas. We can, I think we can infer that that's probably what they were talking about the whole way there. And that, of course, that kind of intellectual conversation flies in the face of what we usually see in the media and, and reading textbooks about how, how violent the Spanish were. So uh, they got the Tepeapulco and uh, there's a woodcut that uh, shows Antonio Valeriano interviewing elders and then sitting at a desk and writing down what he had uh, said or what, what they had said in the interview. And then behind him, Sagun is, is observing and making comments. And what's amazing about this woodcut is that they use this, the Aztec symbol for speech which is called a volute. It looks sort of like, uh, like almost like in cartoons where someone has a speech bubble. It's like this curly cue that comes out of the, the mouth. Well, that means that, that someone is speaking or someone has authority. And in that woodcut, there are two people with, depicted with authority, the elder who, who speaks to Antonio Valeriano and then Sagun with that speech volute. Uh, in any case, that's what they did. They were there for almost a year uh, collecting these stories. And they had uh, an uh, interview format that was consistent for everyone. And it consisted in about 10 or 11 questions, essentially the gist of which is, what are the important things that you want to tell your children and your grandchildren, this, the knowledge that you don't want to disappear? Well, Sagun had this process, and he called it um, colaciones, or or siftings, and he would ask the same questions in Tepeapulco, which was the first stop on, in his, uh, he spent about 30 years collecting these things. This, the, the second stop was in uh, near Teotihuacan, and the third stop was in uh, Mexico, Tenochtitlan. No, no, excuse me, excuse me. The second stop was was Tlatelolco, and then the third stop was uh, Tenochtitlan. So in those three locations, they used the same interviews, and the only material that he considered valid were the answers that were the same in all three of those locations. 
Okay, so so for his time, he had a pretty rigorous process in order to 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 say that something is worth writing down uh, in the in the final edition. He wanted to write this thing called La Historia Universal, and it was in the 1570s when they finally had all the material together, and they went to the Colegio de la Santa Cruz de Patalolco, and they were working to compile this. They had the money to buy all the, all the ink and all the paper they needed, and they set up a scriptorium, and they wrote down everything. And they came up with over 2,000 folios. They came up with 12 volumes. So, uh, to use the word encyclopedia is, is a little out of place in time because the encyclopedia doesn't get invented until the 18th century. But we have something that's a very large compendium of knowledge. In fact, it's the largest compendium of knowledge about the Aztecs that exists. And to this day, huh? To this day, to this day. So everyone goes to the Florentine Codex, whether you're an anthropologist or an historian or or like you and I, we study literature. We, we you know, we'll, we'll pass through the Florentine Codex. Even uh, scholars who study the Mayan zone will often refer to the Florentine Codex uh, on cultural points that are in common with the Mayas. So a very important document. Here they are, they compiled it. And in 1756, or excuse me, in 1576, 1576, Sagun received a letter from his superiors and they said, we've learned about your work and we find it threatening. And so you are hereby ordered. Uh, and, and Philip II seconded this. He, he, he wrote and he said, I agree. Philip II, the emperor of Spain. The, the emperor of Spain, exactly, wrote an order and said, you need to turn over all of your manuscripts to us because this is inadvertently promoting idolatry. We know what you're planning on doing. You want to try to inform priests and educate them about what the people really believe. But sorry to say, this is actually just adultery, or excuse me, um, idolatry. So <laughs> they confiscated it. They put them all in a trunk and took them off to Europe. And the thing that, that really struck me, and I was, I put no these digital things, backups at the time, huh? No, there were no backups. He didn't a, say that. So, drive somewhere with the info. Exactly. On it. <laughs> exactly. This is why you always back your stuff up, right? Um, so the first thing he did, though, uh, when they confiscated, he, he uh, gathered all his aides around him and he said, okay, we need to start to reconstruct everything we can remember about this. Wow. And he persisted in this project and in fact died in excommunication because he was disobedient to his superiors and kept doing the work. So all that just really struck me as very unique for, uh, and, 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 and it doesn't fit into the model of what we usually think of when we think of uh, the violent attempts of the Spaniards to erase everything. And uh, the more I've been looking around, and of course, teaching, uh, that encourages you, you to go deeper. Um, I've encountered a, a, a fabulous book by Barbara Mundi 
called The Death of Tenochtitlan, The Life of Mexico City. And one of her big points is that uh, th there were Spaniards who were trying to erase the culture. But uh, she, she says, of course, you know, there are so many reasons why that, that erasure was unsuccessful. And uh, one of those major reasons is the Colegio de la Santa Cruz and the Florentine Codex. Can I ask you a really quick question then? Sure. If the Florentine Codex was, was carted off to Spain in 1576, or at least it was ordered, brought to Spain in 1576, what happened to it, and how do we know about it now? Yeah, that's that's a funny story too. Um, I I got this from uh, the scholar John Schwaller. Anybody wants to look him up, he has a great book called Sagun at Five Hundred. And uh, what happened to the to the manuscript? Uh, they they received it there uh, in 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 Spain at, at the Escorial, which is the palace of Philip II. Philip II wasn't interested in it. He didn't want to look at it. Uh, but his son had been invited to a wedding. And uh, the, the wedding was in Florence. And, uh, you know, you, you never want to show up empty-handed when you're invited to a royal wedding. So what he decided to do was to gift those volumes to the couple in Florence. And... Uh, Wow. Once the yeah. couple received this, this re-gifted uh, text, they, they looked at it. They didn't know what to make of it. Uh, one column is in, it, it, throughout the whole text, there are two columns. One is in Nahuatl and the other one is in Spanish. And there are thousands of drawings uh, depicting all these um, details that they're, they're telling about their culture. Everything from beliefs in the gods to plants and minerals and animals and uh, all, all kinds of uh, knowledge. They didn't know what to do with it. So they said, well, we know this bishop who really likes books. So we'll just give it to the bishop. He's the bishop of Florence. And the bishop received it gladly. He was a bibliophile. He loved books. He collected them. He took good care of them. But from, from all we know, he put it on his shelf and it stayed there, and no one looked at it until the 19th century. So <laughs> it was just sitting there for, for about 300 years. And uh, at that point in the 19th century, there's a real interest among elites in Europe with uh, Mesoamerican manuscripts. Uh, Coingsburg, he's Lord Coingsburg, he's one who comes to mind. Uh, there was a whole set of uh, folks like that, or Albin. Uh, in, in Paris. And so the, these, uh, these aristocrats would gather and discuss their manuscripts and things like that. And so they, they, they heard about the Florentine Codex and started to talk about it. But, you know, only, only a few people could go see it. Uh, nowadays, it's in La Biblioteca Laurenziana uh, in Florence. And uh, it, you need special permission to see the actual manuscript but fortunately, it's accessible now in a lot of ways. Um, it's on the World Digital Library. Uh, you can type that up pretty, pretty quickly if you go there. The World Digital Library has the whole Florentine Codex, and you can look it up either by Florentine Codex or La Historia General de las Cosas de Nueva España.
which is another title that it has. And uh, you can look through it and it's high resolution and it's very nice. Uh, and, and also back in the 70s, the Mexican government made a lot of facsimiles. They made about 5,000 facsimiles and they're in different libraries. I know that's in the Chicano Cultural Studies Center in LA and I know UCLA has a copy. Uh, it, people in Chicago can find it at the Newberry, and you don't even need special permission to see it. You, all you need is a, you can come off the street, driver's license, and see all these manuscripts at the Newberry. So uh, that's, uh, it's amazing that, that we have such access to that now. That concludes the first half of my conversation with Ezekiel Steer. I hope you enjoyed it and found it interesting. In the second half, we're going to go a little bit more in-depth and speak about the Spanish Empire and how it differed from other empires. We're going to talk a little bit about the Inquisition, and we're going to talk about uh, how native cultures were preserved in Mexico as the colonial period went on. So once again, I hope you look forward to the next episode, and feel free to drop me comments or questions or suggestions. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the California Frontier Podcast. If you like what you heard, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. But most importantly, spread the word. Let other people know. Also, be sure to check out our website at www.californiafrontier.net and send any questions, comments, or suggestions you have to me at damian at californiafrontier.net. 